Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Samantha, do you get into the Olympics? It's according to what's happening. I get into the hype after I hear something good, but the initial performance really makes me nervous and anxious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, get, I, I don't like it. I used to watch a lot more of the winter sports, so ice skating and mm-hmm. such was kind of my thing. Yeah. Uh, I know with the gymnastics and Simone Biles, I might be a little more interested in seeing what's happening there. But yeah, not so much. Yeah. What about you? I'm kind of the same where I, I get... It's, like a level of empathy where I'm worried uh, about people that they're going to fall or, or whatever it is. And I mean, they're professionals and usually it's fine and they don't right. really need my concern. But I do, I do get worried. I, I also really enjoyed ice skating and gymnastics I usually watch and swimming. But I have friends, a group of friends who happen to be the friends that I'm going to the beach with soon. And we have a lot of good memories of just kind of having them on and getting into it. And so we're excited for for that, potentially, because this yeah. is going to be an interesting Olympics. And yeah, as we release this, the Olympics are underway. I believe the day this comes out, which is July 23rd, is the opening ceremony. So just starting. Happy Olympics, if that's something you're into. But yeah, disclaimer, there are a lot of issues to unravel with the Olympics, and specifically these Olympics, in this case of, you know, classism, sexism, Racism, questions of who gets funding, of sexual assault of athletes, uh, ableism uh, this year. The pandemic's still very much not under control in Japan. Uh, In fact, back when I was researching this a couple weeks ago, I think, a state of emergency was declared for Tokyo, which means spectators will not be present. I just heard today that the athletes will have to take medals off of a tray and put them on themselves instead of having someone put them on. Like all of these different things. I know that the city of Tokyo and a lot of people in Tokyo don't want to be having the Olympics, but it's not really right. up to them. So yes, all of that, just just to say, uh, very aware <laughs> that that is all happening. And uh, we hope that they can be as safe as possible and everybody going can be safe. For this episode, though, we did want to look back into some of the history of women in the Olympics. And you can see an episode I did with Eves, our very lovely friend and coworker Eves, on this day in history class where I talked about this. It's much shorter, but you're going to hear a lot of similar information that I thought we could share again. Um, And also, we'll get into some current issues surrounding the games. Not too in-depth, because honestly, each of them could be unpacked into a whole episode, (laughs) and should be but just to go over some of those things. And also some some things that maybe we remember and were inspirational for us uh, when we witnessed them. At least I have a few of those moments. So yeah, let's get into it. So a lot of the story has to do with French feminist Alice Milliat and her Women's World Games, which took place from 1922 to 1934 and led to the Olympics letting women compete in events on a much wider scale. Yay. There's a lot of acronyms in this one, so bear with us. Uh, The Women's World Games were Milliat's response to the International Olympics Committees, or the IOCs, and the International Association of Athletics Federation, IAAF, disdain and fear of first-wave feminists gaining ground, and a lot of women wanting to compete in certain events like the 800-meter track event, events that did not recognize women or had been deemed unfit 
for women. Yes, this 800 meter track event, we're going to get into it, but it caused a lot of controversy mm-hmm. uh, when it came to women competing. So at this time, people, and particularly in this context, Europeans, were already talking about gender equality. The term feminism is thought to have been coined in the 1880s by a French activist by the name of Hubertine Auclair. Around the same time, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was also French, founded the modern iteration of the Olympics and the IOC. De Coubertin outright opposed women's participation in sports, and this bled over into what events he believed women could and should compete in when it came to the Olympics. De Coubertin allegedly said that the Olympics were created for, quote, the solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism with, quote, female applause as reward. (laughs) Wow. He went on to say, quote, it is indecent that spectators should be exposed to the risk of seeing the body of a woman being smashed before their eyes. Besides, no matter how tough a sportswoman may be, her organism is not cut out to sustain certain shocks. Her nerves rule her muscles Nature wanted it that way. (laughs) Wow, again! De Coubertin reasoned that, quote, as no women participated in the ancient games, there obviously was to be no place for them in the modern ones. Which, just as a brief aside, isn't the whole truth. It's not really the point, but... He's wrong. Uh, In general, he's he's wrong. wrong doubly. (laughs) Yes. So the 1900 Games were the first that allowed women to compete, though not officially sanctioned. 22 out of 997 of the competitors were women, and they competed in tennis, golf, sailing, equestrian, and croquet. Only golf and tennis had all-women events. Margaret Abbott was the first American woman to win an Olympic event. Uh, She won it in golf. And over the years, things like women's swimming were added, but track and field events were pretty much non-existent for female competitors. And why track and field? Historians aren't quite sure, but there are a few theories, including some physicians thought women exerting themselves to the point of visible sweat was unhealthy. Oh man, I'm dying then. (laughs) It was thought to be possibly bad for the uterus and definitely viewed as unladylike and unattractive for men. Weirdly enough, still happening, I guess, in a, in a way, since they keep disqualifying women from a lot of the track events, if you yeah. noticed, and mainly <laughs> women of color, but whatever. Right. So the Victorian woman was not meant to be muscular. It would break traditional gender norms and make her look too manly. So definitely some homophobia going on here as well. Some also speculate that men at large at the time wanted to be stronger than women, surprise, and, and that they wanted women to depend on them for protection and may have even wanted to be able to overpower them. Yeah, which is disturbing. Yeah, it's still happening today. Yeah, exactly. A lot of that is still happening today when we talk about people's discomfort with muscular muscular women and this idea that it's not safe for women to be as competitive or athletic and, yeah, let the men do this, like, tough manly thing. The whole idea of that Still around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were so many myths about the health of women exercising during Victorian times, especially during menstruation. Women, and especially upper-class white women, because they were the ones with the time and money to exercise and play sports for leisure, just in general at the time, pushed back on these narratives in fields like bicycling, tennis, and swimming. And also, we've talked about 
a lot of this, these myths around women and exercising in several past episodes, if you're if you're curious in learning more about that. The first French women's athletic club, Femina Sport, which was founded in 1911, put together France's very first women's national championship for track and field in 1917. That same year, some of Femina Sport's founders created the Fédération des Sociétés Féminines Sportives de France. Women's Sports Federation of France. I hope I did not completely butcher that. <laughs> <laughs> well, enter Alice Milia, one of these founders. She formally requested that women's track and field be added to the Olympics in 1921. Uh, she was turned down, so she decided to host her own Olympics. Uh, she founded the FSFI, or ISFI, and on March 24th of 1921, the organization hosted the inaugural Women's Olympiad in Monte Carlo, complete with 11 track and field events and five countries represented. It was meant to persuade the IOC to add women to the Olympics, and despite the fact that it was success, the IOC rejected their appeal. Once again, that did not stop Milia. In the following year, the ISFI took it up a notch and hosted the first Women's Olympic Games with the idea of following the same four-year schedule. Smart. Uh, the first one <laughs> took place in Paris, and five countries, including the United States, participated, and it was attended by around 20,000 spectators. I love this. Yeah, but like, guess you know what? Who Here we go. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, I'm down to do the own event. <laughs> but Dave Cooperton and the IOC and the IAAF really didn't like it. <laughs> Surprise. And he has so, so many acronyms to keep track of here. They decreed that the IAAF should be in charge of all track and field events, including women's. This was a grab for control over the Olympics' brand image and rules around who could compete. After these two organizations agree that, yes, the IOC and IAAF should each govern women's track and field events, acknowledging it was a thing... So at least they were like, okay, women can do this. <laughs> um, they also immediately agreed that women would not have the right to appear in track and field events in the 1924 Olympics. As a result, the ISFI did strike the Olympic from their event and renamed it the Women's World Games to get the IOC off their backs. Such bitter babies. <laughs> The show went on, though, and four years later, the second Women's World Games set in Sweden drew athletes from nine countries. The IOC was furious and wanted to shut it all down. They attempted to compromise and added five women's track and field events in the 1928 Olympic Games compared to the 22 events men would compete in. Milia wasn't satisfied, although some others in the ISFI were. The British women's team was on Milia's side and boycotted the 1928 Games. Yes, and even though it was historic, a lot of the press at the time did not report on it in a positive light. Surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, take this quote from the New York Times. The final of the women's 800-meter run in which Frau Lina Radka of Germany set a world's record plainly demonstrated that even this distance makes too great a call on feminine strength. At the finish, six out of the nine runners were completely exhausted and fell headlong on the ground. Several had to be carried off the track. The little American girl, Miss Florence McDonald, who made a gallant try but was outclassed, was in half a faint for several minutes, while even the sturdy Miss Hitomi of Japan, who finished second, needed attention before she was even able to leave the field. Okay, so there's a lot of very gendered <laughs> misogynistic right. language in that. Little miss. 
Little Miss, um, Gallant Try, like how condescending. Right. Also, like when you get to the end of a very intense, very intense physical activity, you might need a minute to recover. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Again, see Samantha and I running this race recently, and it, we were it not bad. pushing ourselves that hard at all. It was bad. Oh, I was pushing myself. It just wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> the slow and the miserable, as I like to call it. <laughs> yep. So, women's participation in the 800-meter run in particular was controversial. And the IOC prohibited women from competing in this event again until 1960. Yeah. The 1932 Olympic Games only allowed women to compete in the 100-meter dash, which, to be fair, I couldn't do either. <laughs> I mean, all of this is difficult. Yeah, I just... I don't know why this eight hundred this hang up around the eight hundred meter run I find odd, but yeah, that back to that original <laughs> entry of women in the nineteen twenty eight Olympics. Uh, the New York Evening Post ran a story headlined "Eleven Wretched Women" about the women who competed wretched women in eight, the eight hundred meter run. Yeah, what a That's story! Even better. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> I would like re- I would hold on to wretched to be like, damn straight. <laughs> it's kind of, yep. I feel like that's what we do now when they try to call us anything. We're like, you know what? Okay. Here call we me go. that. I want to keep winning. <laughs> <laughs> we do have some more history for you, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. So compared to the Olympics, the 1930s Women's World Game hosted 12 track and field events and competitors from 17 different countries. 1934's Women's World Game was even bigger with 19 countries competing in 13 track and field events. With the success of these games, Milliard demanded that 1936 Olympics include what she called a, quote, full program of women's events or make the Olympics for male competitors only because the ISFI was doing just fine. Thank you very much. She twisted the IAAF's arm and they eventually conceded to a nine-event program at the Olympics and to acknowledge the record set at the Women's World Games. And the upcoming 1938 Women's World Games became the European Athletics championships. It is a lot to keep track of, all these names. A lot of shifting, moving parts. We've got a lot of acronyms. Milia died in 1957, but she did live to see women in France get the right to vote in 1944. The contributions of her and the women competitors in these games was a big deal for women's equality. Um, These were women who did not take no for an answer and made their own games where they could compete, where people weren't telling them what they could and couldn't do. And they were successful enough that the IOC had to listen to them. And think of all the amazing, strong female athletes we've seen and the records they've broken, the feats they've accomplished, the girls they've inspired. And yeah, I'm a runner and I'm competitive. I've definitely missed my Olympic window. (laughs) But if I had grown up not seeing women compete in track and field events at the Olympics, there's no way... For me personally, at least, that would not have impacted me and what I thought I could accomplish. I had enough insecurities around running when I first started. I might have put limits on myself. And running, when when I do it correctly and healthily, it makes me feel powerful and strong and confident. And I owe at least some of that to the women before me who fought for this chance to compete. Right. Yes. And of course, big asterisks were mostly talking about white women and upper-class white women here. 
uh, still right. at this point. Despite being limited in the number of competitors and events that allowed women to compete, historically women have been more than pulling their weight in the U.S. when it comes to medals. At the 1952 Winter Olympics, the U.S. won four gold medals and two of them were earned by women, despite the numbers being so disproportionate in terms of the high number of male athletes representing the U.S. and the low number of female athletes. At the 1972 Winter Olympics, the U.S. sent 77 men and 26 women. All three of the gold medals were earned by women. This trend continued over the next several Olympic Games. At the 1992 Winter Olympics, for example, all five of the U.S.'s gold medals were won by women. Also during the 50s, many majority white universities did away with women's sports, while many predominantly and historically black universities did not, which did impact kind of the future of athletes in this country. Right. The right of women to participate in sports was officially recognized at an international conference, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in 1979. This followed in the footsteps of a 1964 survey at the Tokyo Olympics where women reported that they, quote, became stronger, had even greater stamina, and were more balanced in every way after having a child. The passage of Title IX in 1972 opened doors for women and girls looking for athletic opportunities in the U.S., which furthered this whole push and conversation, and it was something that had an international influence. The International Working Group on Women in Sport was formed in 1994 at their inaugural World Conference. It also gave way to the Brighton Declaration, an international treaty looking to provide an equal playing field in the world of sport and physical activity. The following year, the UN organized the Fourth World Conference on Women, Action for Equality, Development, and Peace in Beijing, where they released the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action that for the first time specifically mentioned sport as a tool for women's empowerment and equality. The IOC updated their Olympic Charter in 1996 with this. The role of the IOC is to lead the promotion of Olympiism in accordance with the Olympic Charter. For that purpose, the IOC strongly encourages by appropriate means the promotion of women in sports at all levels in all structures, particularly in the executive bodies of nation and international sports organizations with a view to the strict application of the principle of equality of men and women. They also held their first World Conference on Women in Sports that year and with these three goals, create awareness about women's roles in sports, assess the progress made in the area of gender equality in sports, and define future priority actions to promote women in sport. They made a goal of having 20% of leadership roles be filled by women in 2000 which was later revised towards 30%, a goal they reached with 36 women in leadership positions out of 100 as of 2020. The first woman was elected to the IOC executive board in 1990, and in 2014, the IOC made the pledge to work towards 50% women participants and to add mixed gender events. The IOC launched the Gender Equality Review Project in 2017. In 2012, women won more medals than men for the very first time, and they also took home 29 of Team USA's 46 gold medals. Women accounted for 45% of the participants at the 2016 Games in Brazil, 5,176 women out of 11,444 athletes. In the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, that number is 49% women, according to the IOC. Again, things are changing kind of... <laughs> 
kind of rapidly as we record this. They've also instituted scheduling policies to ensure equal visibility for female and male athletes and introduced a new requirement that all National Olympic committees have at least one female and one male representative on their teams and are encouraged to have a man and woman carry their flag at the opening ceremony. In terms of the Paralympics, Tokyo has issued a rule that 40.5% of the competitors must be women. This is about a 40% bump from the 2016 Games, which is substantial. Wow. Yeah. And yes, this isn't to say there have not been problems. In February of 2021, the head of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics had to apologize after saying something along the lines of women talk too much in meetings. So that's why he didn't invite them to meetings. They took too long. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like, oh, my bad. (laughs) What? <laughs> he, was, he did it in such a way where he was like, well, we all know I'm not wrong, right? But okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. And then they just left him there and everybody's like, wait, you're going to let him represent? And they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll bring another man as part of this instead. <laughs> right. I'm kind of like, wow, you guys cannot read a room. Great job. Uh, women that perform, quote, too well have long been subject to suspicion and punishment, as we've seen, often forced to take tests to prove their gender. This practice, called the nude parade, started regularly in 1968 as a response to the discomfort of American audiences in the face of muscular women athletes competing for the Soviet Union. Separate issue, but this may have been a part of a state-sponsored program that fed athletes vitamins that were actually steroids. So yeah, that's a thing still. The outcry against the nude parade caused the IOC to pivot instead to less than reliable chromosomal tests. Yes, and Heinrich Dora Ratian was one of the first gender scandals of the Olympics in 1936 when Ratian placed fourth in the high jump competition. Due to a genital scar, doctors had identified Ratian as a girl at birth, but Ratian had always identified more as a boy. It wasn't until he was arrested in 1938 for being a, quote, man in woman's clothing in the police's eyes that Ratian had to tackle this gender identity thing more head on. And yeah, this whole thing has impacted and continues to impact intersex and trans athletes particularly hard. And obviously, as we're having this conversation, it's also very binary of like male or female athletes. Right. So that is absolutely still an issue. Yeah. Um, And the IOC abolished gender verification tests in 1999, but that has by no means prevented gender suspicions. When Castro Semenya really destroyed the 2009 African Junior Championships uh, 800-meter race, the IOC made her submit to sex testing, and they further went on to put in place mandatory testings for high testosterone in 2011, even though there's no scientific evidence that higher levels of testosterone boost strength and athleticism. Um, And by the way, yeah, men do not have to undergo such tests. And yeah, it has been a disqualifier this year. Still angry about this. Yeah, me too. And like, I think the whole thing is bogus, but the fact that men don't have to do it, uh, that that just really infuriates me because in theory, you could have like some really high testosterone man, right? Right. (laughs) Then we need to, yeah. Um, But Regulate that too, right? Again, I think the whole thing is nonsense. But yeah, there's many infuriating levels. (laughs) We do have some more infuriating things, but also some uplifting things that we wanted to talk (laughs) about. But first, we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. And we're 
back. Thank you, sponsors. So there are so many names and so many firsts we could go through, and perhaps one day we will when it comes to the Olympics. And a lot of the things we talked about, um, we could dig into more. But in the meantime, here are some things in recent history and some things that are happening right now that we wanted to highlight. And I guess disclaimer, I personally have not looked too in-depth into all of these athletes' lives and what they have said. Uh, So I guess what I'm saying is the equivalent of like a retweet is not an endorsement. (laughs) If that makes sense. Just because we're talking about them doesn't mean we're endorsing them. Well, I just don't necessarily know like maybe after I saw this thing that I thought was really cool, uh, something else went down. But yeah, Yeah. people can be disappointing. They absolutely, they can be. They absolutely can be. (laughs) But okay, that being said, I did want to start with the Magnificent Seven because these Olympics, the 1996 Olympics were held in Atlanta. And I did get to go not to this. I went to a rowing event and I (laughs) thought it was so cool that I could hear all these different languages around me. That's what I really remember. (laughs) I like it. But yes, the 1996 women's gymnastic team became the first American team to win a gold medal in the women's gymnastics team all-around competition, beating out Russia. And I remember this. I remember all the excitement around it. And yeah, I when Carrie Strug like stuck that landing with an injured ankle, I just woo. Yeah, it made me. her an icon for sure. Oh, it definitely, definitely did. So that's one thing that I remember. Because I got into gymnastics after that, I think. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> I want to do this. And I had a lot of fun with gymnastics, but I was never very good at it because the balancing thing <laughs> that we spoke about. <laughs> right. I was always a chunky kid, so I think I was a little too bottom heavy. Mm-hmm. That's what I assumed. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both are selling ourselves too short. I, not that we're Olympians, but... <laughs> uh... <laughs> I was decent enough that I got asked to compete, but I was so insecure, I turned the uh, opportunity down. Not in the Olympics, but like at a competition. (laughs) Right, in a competition. (laughs) Yes, yes. So also in 1996, the women's soccer team. It was a very inspiring year for women athletes, I guess. Uh, The team won two to one against China. Women's soccer had just officially been added to the lineup of Olympic events. And at the time, it drew the largest crowd ever to attend a women's sporting event. I also remember this, and my roommate in college had a Mia Hamm poster on her wall, and she was so into, which I'm actually thankful right. for, because she would get me to watch the games. She, she would like know all the statistics, and she played soccer, and I kind of played soccer because she did. So again, yeah, another kind of inspirational. I'm not sure I would have done that if that had not happened. Yeah, I didn't have a soccer in our county, my city, but I loved it. And uh, I knew who Mia Hamm was. Like, she was an icon in that way too is you're like wow she is really of course they got paid nothing and still do so right. that's a whole different conversation <laughs> but to actually have a name out there for a very male-dominated sport international sport yes was phenomenal mm-hmm. and we've talked before about how despite the fact once again the u.s women's soccer team is consistently better yeah they get paid a lot less and aren't provided with the same opportunities whether it comes to marketing or even the training facilities and equipment or any of the such uh and cnn just released a documentary on hbo max called lfg all about the whole thing and the fight for equal pay and just fyi (laughs) the men's team didn't qualify for the 2021 summer olympics not that we're gloating about that because we, we want everybody to be, make it, but I feel like this is one more argument as to, yes, 
the U.S. women's soccer team should be paid more and equal. <laughs> At least equal. I know. It's one of those things where I've read the, in heavy quotes, like reasoning from officials as to why, but you they're, they're ridiculous, one. But when you just like, the U.S. women's soccer team is amazing. Right? And they've done all this despite these obstacles. Right. And it's like, why are we even having to fight for this? It should be like, yes, the proof is here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> also, as we discussed in a recent or upcoming classic, I can't recall, uh, surfing will be at the Tokyo Olympics for the first time. And women will be competing in that, which is exciting. I think the number is like seven, so it's not a lot. Right. But that's that's interesting. And, and as we said in that classic, there are a lot of issues there with uh, whitewashing and, and stuff like that. But I'm intrigued to see where it will go. And I also kind of like, I guess it's similar to snowboarding. I don't mean to offend anybody who's a, a, like pro of these things. I'm just, I'm not good at determining how you'll score that. <laughs> Well, there's already surfing competitions in general, but style and waves and all that. I know those are big things. Uh, Difficulty levels and how long you stay up. Yeah. All of those. But of course, uh, we can't talk about the Olympics without talking about a legend, Simone Biles. Uh, And despite, again, the ridiculous uh, scoring system and how messed up it is, Simone Biles continues to inspire and dominate. And no matter how hard they try to pull her back, she just keeps saying, you know what, it's fine. They just can't keep up with me. And that is a queen act. She has a move named after her, maybe two. Like, she's awesome. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that future athletes will be like, I'm going to one day, I'm going to learn to do the Simone Biles. That's beautiful. Right. And yes, as you kind of alluded to, Samantha, there has been an outcry over a recent spate of Olympic officials policing Black athletes and particularly Black women athletes. Um, It's really unfortunate. We continue to see these stories in 2021. Like... It's frustrating that so many of these things that we talked about and like the history are still here. <laughs> right. Well, the fact that that changes didn't occur except for the past five years. Like that's yeah. the most absurd of it all is like, wait, it was five years ago that these changes were implemented? Can't believe it. And then, of course, we want also talked about uh, New Zealand's Laurel Hubbard becoming the first trans athlete to compete in the Olympics. Excited to see that. Um, of course, we've still been... Uh, seeing some disappointing transphobia, constant disappointments, constant, uh, <laughs> even from other Olympic athletes, which is not surprising and still disappointing. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> those some ups and downs, <laughs> some highs and lows. <laughs> That's and a some... real roller coaster here. It was, it was. Uh, it's kind of like the Olympics is and has been. It's true. Especially when it comes to women trying to compete in all these intersections of um, find it of like racist and ableist and transphobic and homophobic things and trying to make spaces for everyone to compete. Right. But yes, that is what we have to say about the Olympics for now. If you would like to contact us, listeners, you can. Our email is stephaniamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 